Thank you, Penny. That was a great job. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of Proverbs. We're going to start chapter 5 today. If you're someone that's just visiting with us today, and we have a number of visitors here today, we've been, we've been coming through basically a, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. You know, and when it comes to books in the Bible, one of the best ways to oh, teach them or even lay them out for people is to go through it you know, verse by verse, principle by principle, and kind of gleaning out all of the great truths that are in there that we all need to have in our lives. And that's what we've been doing. And we just finished chapter 4 last week, and every week we've been, we've been getting some great principles that really, uh, uh, that really help. Now, last week, I, I think, was probably, as I told you, one of the most important verses, and that was dealing with the issues of life. And uh, we all have issues in life. There'll never be a man or a woman who ever walks this planet that doesn't have issues uh, in their lives. They're always going to be there. Uh, Some are more serious than others. Some are devastating. uh, But uh, we all have them. And I showed you how that, from the Bible, all the issues that we go through, the issues of life, all go back to a central source, and that is man's heart. And then it manifests itself uh, into a way of life. When I teach people how to help people and work with people, I teach a basic concept called attitude and action. You know, and I, I tell them that the attitude that we develop about things will always produce an action. And when you get the wrong attitude or you get a bad attitude or you get a, a, things that are not true in your life that you think about people or circumstances or situations then it always produces the wrong action. This is the importance of of operating from the Bible, having the Bible principles in your life. The Bible will never guide you wrong. It will never take you astray. It will always set itself up as the final authority on the issues of life. And when you take those principles, and this is what we've been trying to accomplish, when you learn those principles and you take those principles and you take them into your heart and into your life, it changes your attitude about things, changes your attitude about people, changes your attitude about life, the problems that life. And it gives us then the ability to have the right action based on the right attitude. Every problem we face will go back to that source of our heart attitude. And then, of course, the other thing that I've told you many, many times, that life is about choices, isn't it? We'll make good choices and we make bad choices. We'll make choices that, that uh, some choices are worse than others, and some choices are very devastating uh, in our lives. But we, life is about those choices. And when you have the right attitude that produces the right action, then the goal in life should be to make as many good choices as you can and as few of bad choices that you can. You remember I gave you seven great uh, admonitions on keeping your heart with all diligence. And that was really the focus of last week. Keeping your heart with all diligence because out of the heart come the issues of life. And uh, I, I, uh, I showed you each one of them and then I showed you the process in each one of them how to accomplish that goal in your life. Now today we're going to start in chapter 5 and we'll go down through here for I don't know how far we'll get today but we'll start with chapter 5 and we'll see yet again some more great principles on life and how to keep God's blessing and favor in our lives by staying on the path of righteousness and and not being deceived. Now, he says in chapter 5 of Proverbs, uh, he says this, verse 1, My son, attend unto my wisdom and bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, that thy lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou cannot know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh to the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. 
and say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teacher nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Now, Father, help us today to, to, to grow through this and to glean through this. And if there's someone here today, Lord, that may be struggling in the issues of life, and it's hard today in America or anywhere in the world to get a crowd this size together that someone's not going through something. Help them to understand today, Father, that the Word of God, uh, the principles are what we need in our life to help us get past the issues of life and to deal with those things, to get us to the point where we start making the choices in life based on the right things instead of the wrong things. And we'll be faithful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise today in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now you'll notice if you're counting that this is the tenth time that we find the phrase, my son. And I told you and keep reminding you how that that when he opens up the first seven chapters of Proverbs, he's given very clear instructions to his own son, which is Rehoboam in the Bible. But more than that, it's a picture and a practical way of God giving you and me instructions about our life and the things of life. There's two key words here as you begin to come down through verse 1 that I think are very important. The first one he says, My son, attend unto my wisdom. It's the word attend. Now, we get a lot of different words from the word attend, or maybe the word attend comes from a lot of different other words, but the word attendant, attendance, the word attention, all of those are byproducts that bring us down when he says uh, to attend to something. A while back, I gave you a great verse in 1 Timothy 4.13. It said, Paul said to Timothy that till he comes, uh, give attendance to, to reading, to exhortation and to doctrine. And it shows us that uh, we're going to have to stay in attendance with the things of God. You can't just take a little bit of the Bible or when the Bible when you want it, and then you've got you to be in attendance. You've got to attend to it. And then the second thing he says, he says, bow thine ear. And, of course, that is a picture of us humbling ourselves. Many times people have pride in their life that they don't want to admit they've got the problems that they've got. They will stand all day long trying to alibi it and justify it. But at the end of the day, you know, what really has to happen is uh, for us to uh, humble ourselves, to bow uh, down our ear to hear what God has to say. And then in verse 2, there's another key phrase here that I think is very important. And uh, it says that thou mayest regard discretion. Note, it doesn't say just to get discretion, but it says to regard discretion. Now, that's a good word as it's used here, the word regard. Uh, It means to respect something. It means to esteem something. It means to have a reverence of something. You know, if I say in regard to Tom, I think he's a great guy. Well, I made a point of reference about Tom about something that specifically I focused on. Uh, It's the attention of the mind to or towards something. Uh, it's to be focused on something. So when you, in the case of 5.2, it says regarding discretion. And it simply means that regarding discretion as the valuable, valuable asset that it truly is. That thy lips, as he says, keeps knowledge. Discretion guides you into what to say. Discretion will tell you when to speak and when not to speak. In dealing with situations with people, another thing I always tell people, I said, you know, when you're working with somebody and you're trying to help somebody, one of the things that you got to remember is that you, you, you can't want that person to do right more than they do. You know, you want to help them. You want to do everything you can for them. That's our job. But you also realize that there comes a line that you can't cross. I can't want you to do right more than you do. You're going to have to want that for yourself. And when you start to work with people, sometimes you come up against that line where you see somebody that they don't want to go to the next level. They don't want to go to the next step. In my dealing with them, I never push them. I never push anybody to do anything. My job is to to lay out the truth. My job is to be available to help anybody, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. But I have some guidelines that I have to follow. And one of the guidelines is that I have to understand that uh, I have to regard discretion. I have to understand when it's time to back off a little bit, when it's time not to say something that maybe I felt like I should say. You see, discretion is the application of wisdom. 
and the ability to see things as they really are and then speak to them with understanding. Looking at any issue in life and having the ability to deal with it in regards to the discretion that you have. In dealing with the issues of life, you find that people you try to help, you know, it becomes invaluable. It becomes an asset that you use all the time in your life. Knowing when to basically, as I said, back out of a situation that, uh, you know, that you know now that uh, you went as far as you can go. Now, let's look at verse 3 here. Here comes the body of our, of our message today. For the, lip, for the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. Now, we were introduced to this woman back in Proverbs chapter 2, if you remember. And uh, we know that she has said in chapter 2 and in chapter 7, she's, we're told that she is a whorish woman or a harlot. And uh, yet, we also, in Proverbs chapter 2, we met her husband, if you remember. And the two concepts that we looked at was the evil man and, and the strange woman. And if you remember, I took you back to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, and I actually showed you an example in the Old Testament, in one of the uh, stories in the Old Testament, uh, that really represents this evil man and a strange woman. And it's the story of Ahab, who was the king of Israel, who the Bible says he was probably the most wicked king that Israel ever had. But he had a wife, and his wife was Jezebel. And we all know Jezebel. And Jezebel was a religious prophetess, she was the head of all the Baal worship in Egypt. And when you look at Ahab and, and, uh, and Jezebel, when you get into the book of Proverbs, they kind of are the poster child for the evil man and the strange woman, where the evil man will represent all the ologies that man comes up with to get around uh, the things of God. All the scientific, all of the philosophy, all of the things of the world that man comes up with to get himself around God, that'll be, that'll be the evil man. But the strange woman, typified by Jezebel, will always represent false religion. As she was the queen of all of, the, of the, all of the Baal worship. She had 400 prophets of Baal, if you remember the story. And we, we learn from that back in Proverbs chapter 2 that this, this strange woman represents false religion. And she has, when you, when you lay it out coming through Proverbs, she has all the characteristics of what we would call an apostate religion, a religion that has really nothing to do with the Bible. And she's a picture of a system or a church that is like Christ talked about uh, in Matthew chapter 23 where he's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, you guys are like whited sepulchers. Now a sepulcher is a tomb. And he says, you're like a whited sepulcher. You're all painted up and garnished and white on the outside, but inside it's full of dead man bones. And, you know, and so she represents for us from Revelation chapters 17 and 18, that great study on Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots. And uh, she's a great study to come through the Bible. Now, we know from our past teachings that everything in the Bible, every story, every chapter, every book will have a couple of different applications there'll be a historical application that it actually happened in history. There'll be a doctrinal application that it, it references something maybe in the future, but then there'll be a practical application, and that's what I can learn from it from, for every day in, in my life. Now, historically, this, strain, uh, this uh, uh, strange woman uh, is a picture of all the women that Solomon messed with. Bible says back there in uh, 1 Kings 11, 1, that Solomon loved many strange women. What he did was, is he, when he got to be king of Israel, and he was a great king, but his downfall was the fact that he loved many strange women. And what he did is, uh, what was strange about them is not necessarily how they looked, but what was strange about them that they were the part of the other nations that God told them, stay away from. And when he, when he, as the Bible says, clave to these in love, they brought in all their false gods. They brought in all of the deal. In fact, Solomon gets so taken up in it that the wisest man that ever lived, and he certainly was, once these women took his heart away from God, it's not far down the line that you know what he's doing? He's offering up his own children in human sacrifices. That's how bad it got. So historically, it's dealing with Solomon and his situation. Doctrinally, 
It'll be the false religion of the Antichrist, who we all know and, uh, and uh, it is connected with the second coming of Christ. And it's connected with the Baal worship in the Old Testament that brings its way all the way through and all the false churches uh, in the New Testament times. Now, uh, <clears throat> inspirationally, It'll be a picture of the 20, 21st century uh, woman or man, it doesn't have to be necessarily a woman in the study here, who will take a Christian young man or young lady's heart away from God. Someone that'll come into their life when they're starting to get into the Bible and someone will come into their life when they start to learn things and, and uh, they'll, they'll have more of a sway on them because they're young yet and they're trying to figure it all out and they'll pull them right back into the world and the list in my 40-plus years in the ministry, is endless of those kind of situations. Now, we want to look at this from a doctrinal standpoint, but we also want to come back in a, in a practical way and kind of make some comments on it. The historical pretty much will take care of itself as I laid it out. Now, we live in a day and age where people think that it's a terrible thing to speak about uh, another real religion. We live in a world where everybody always wants to get along. And, of course, uh, that's, that's pretty hard to do. You know, we live in a world that talks about don't offending anybody. I have never figured out in my life how not to offend somebody. Because if I say something to you that you like, the guy sitting next to you won't like it. I have never found out how not to do that. It would be in a perfect world. It would be nice, but it just doesn't work that way. And then adding to that... When you start talking about truth, truth always offends people. I grew up in a generation, uh, most of you don't even know what a hippie is anymore, but I grew up in a, I grew up in a generation where uh, the, the coined phrase was, tell it like it is, tell it like it is. And when I first got saved, I used to go around and witness to these guys and try to win them to Christ and gals. And uh, I found out very quickly that the generation that I grew up that said, tell it like it is, didn't want to hear it what it really was. And so it's the way it is. And you know, you don't, I, you're not mean-spirited about it. It's, it's the things of life. It's the issues of life. And when you, when you learn uh, some things about the devil and God and the Bible, you know, you see it. I mean, Paul had no problem laying all of the false teachers out. In fact, when he wrote First and Second Timothy to young Timothy, he all the way through both those books, he warns him about false teachers, false prophets, people who teach heresy. Christ in his time in the New Testament. My, my, my. How many times he went round and round with the groups of religious people who didn't like him. Now, how do you not like Christ? I mean, honestly. How do you not just not, I mean, even if you don't know anything about him, and if you're not saved this morning, and you don't, you're not a child of God, how do, you, how do you just not like Christ? There has to be something seriously wrong with somebody that here's a man who never did anything wrong in his life. He never hurt anybody, never did anything wrong to anybody in his life. Yet today, nobody wants anything to do with him. You know what his problem was? Truth. He was truth. And people in the world today who don't want to hear truth, they're always going to be offended at truth. It's not that I start out every morning seeing who I can tick off. It just happens that way when you, when you start to preach the truth. And the truth, you know, people don't always want to hear it today. We think that the devil runs around with horns, big long tail, a pitchfork, and a red union suit. And we always think that the devil, we always associate the devil with drunkard, drugs, and all of the things that go along with that. But you know, when you look at the Bible, the Bible gives you a... Now, I'm not saying that that isn't, that isn't the stuff of the world, and I'm not saying that's all good. But I, what I'm, my point I'm trying to make is this. When you get into the Bible, you'll find that the devil's main sphere of operation has always been religion. Amen. Always been religion. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 said, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of life. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. When you start coming through the Bible, it's very clear that the devil uh, has a Christ. We call him the Antichrist. 
You ever notice in the book of Revelation where it really gets down the line and it really gets moving with the devil and Christ and the devil and Christ that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 and Revelation 11 verse 15, it starts making you, when it makes a reference to Christ and God, it starts saying, it doesn't just say Christ, it starts to say His Christ. Do you ever, one of the great things about the Bible that I have pondered for absolute years and I have all kinds of ideas on it, and I don't really talk about it much, but you get over there in Luke chapter 26, where it's dealing with the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. And all of the people are coming there to see the Lord and uh, all that stuff. And uh, when they finally show up, one of the guys says, and this is, a, this is the strangest phrase, I think, in the Bible, and probably is the epitome of an incredible study, that I don't think anybody's ever on earth. I've heard a couple of guys allude to it over, over my years. But uh, one of those guys comes up on the night that he's born and he makes the statement that this is the Lord's Christ. Now, why did he say the Lord? Why did he say the Christ? Why did he make the distinction that it was the Lord's Christ? That's one of the most amazing mysteries to me in the Bible. The devil has, uh, not only has a Christ, the devil has an unholy spirit. Revelation chapter 12 and 13, he's called the false prophet. The devil has a Bible. We talked about the two lines of Bibles coming down through history. One is a pure line, the other one's a corrupt line. The devil believes the fundamentals of the faith. In James chapter 2 verse 19 it says, he says, you believe in God, you do well. But then he says, the devils also believe in trouble. The devil's not an atheist. The devil believes the fundamentals of the faith. The devil doesn't hang out with atheists. You know why? He's already got them. He don't have to waste time with them. We had this little thing a while back called dial-a-prayer where you called it and got the prayer for the day, you know. Atheists are always coming at us for something. I mean, they, 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 they want their own little world. They want to be recognized. And so, you know, every time Christians put up a, a, a thing, the atheists got to put up something, you know. And they, so way back when, they got this little dial of prayer where you called a number, you got the prayer for the day. You know, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. So the atheists wanted to counter that. So they got dialing atheists. And when you dial that number, nobody ever answered but I'm telling you, see, the devil doesn't hang out with that crowd. He doesn't. And, and the devil has a church. And you find that church laid out for you in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and Revelation chapter 17. A couple of weeks ago, we were studying in Proverbs. And remember I gave you, we were talking about the way of wisdom. And I ran you back to Job chapter 38 verse 19 where it says, the way, uh, where is the way that light dwelleth? And I showed you just as uh, light never stops moving, spiritual growth never stops, the wisdom of God never stops. Remember that? But the last part of that verse in 19, uh, we didn't make much comment on. And it says, uh, as for the darkness, where is the place thereof? Hey, I want to tell you, there's a certain place on this earth right this morning as I'm speaking that represents the darkness of everything in this world and it's Satan's concept and it's his religion. It's the place where darkness dwells. Now, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have a picture of the church age, and you see the development of God's church, but you also see the development of, of the devil's religion. Revelation 2, 6, it talks about the, the deeds of this religion. And by the time you get to 215, it talks about now the deeds have turned into the doctrine of this religion. And then in 213, it says that this is where Satan dwells in this religion. And then when you get to 213 at the end, it says this is where Satan's seat is. He's now firmly established. Now it says, For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Now, honeycomb, you know in the Bible, is a type of the Word of God. Oil in the Bible is a type of the Holy Spirit. But notice it says, as. It's a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. Now, when you come down in Proverbs chapter 2, we already looked at that. We're in 5 today, and a little bit later on we'll get into chapter 7. You find that this strange woman and the allurement of false religion is pictured as a harlot trying to seduce the son. And, of course, the son is the son, uh, us as the sons of God. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. 
Her words are smoother than a used car salesman. I mean, it's slicker than slick. I mean, she prays, she talks about God, she claims to have her miracles, she has all the things, the music, the choir, the organ, and all of the songs, and all of the things that make you think that she's really of God. But to the man without discernment, you see, he falls right into it. But when you have discernment and you regard discernment, then you have the Word of God and the understanding and the wisdom. God gives you that discernment to see it as she really is. The Bible says in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, and I've used this verse a lot, but it's, it keeps coming into play. There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but their end thereof are the ways of death. Now, the easiest way to stop a false religion, and when, when Jeannie and I were talking about church, Jeannie told me straight up, she says, now she says, I'm not into religion. I said, good. She said, I, I, I think that I have a spiritual relationship with God. I said, that's exactly what you're supposed to have. Because that's what, that's what, that's what everybody wants today. They want a religion. But see, a religion is not a personal walk in relationship with God. That's the difference. And the easiest way to spot a religion, a false religion, this strange woman, is to look at the plan of salvation, of how a person gets saved. You know, I don't know of anything more simpler and easy in the Bible than for a person to understand salvation. Salvation is not complicated. Salvation is not hard. Salvation is simply a spiritual thing that you look at what Christ did for you on the cross. You know that you don't deserve heaven. You know that none of us should be in heaven. And then you realize that Christ died for you and for me. And in that spiritual relationship between you and him, you simply ask him to come into your life, apply his death on the cross, you're saved. No church to it. But when man gets a hold of God's simple plan of salvation, it all changes. It becomes complicated. Now, salvation has to be something you do. You know you can't do anything to earn your way to heaven. There's not a thing I can do. Your best day is vanity between before God. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation. Nothing you can do. People say, well, you have to join this particular church because in this particular religion, that's the only place you find salvation. That's not true. Somebody says, well, you have to be baptized to be saved because baptism is how you get saved. That's not true. Somebody says, well, you have to do good works because good works is what saves you. That's not true. Let me ask you a question. If you had to only get baptized to go to heaven or do good works to get to heaven or join a church to get to heaven, why did Jesus have to come down and suffer and die? Why not just go join this church? Of course, it'd be my church. Why not just go to this church? Why don't you go do this? Go do that. If that was all there was to it, but it wasn't. You know why he came down and died, agonized on the cross, said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why he put the hands and his nails in his feet and the spear in his side? You know why he died on that cross? Because you couldn't get there on your own. That's why. No religion to it. I mean, it looks good. It sounds good until you open your Bible and see it for what it is with discretion. You know, Jesus dealt with this group all the time. My favorite passage is Matthew chapter 23. You might want to look at it there for a moment. We'll talk about it. And, and this is where he goes, to he goes to town with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. He says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 23, he says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that ye are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Boy, he must be having a bad day. That's just Jesus speaking. He didn't have the sweet spirit of Christ here, did he? 
I mean, where's this idea that we don't speak against those things? I'm not saying you go out looking for it, but I'm saying in preaching the truth, it's just going to happen. He says in verse 24, ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. What a thing to say, man. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but wherein they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, clean with first that which is within the cup, that's inside man, the platter and then the outside, and then may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the uh, whited sepulchers, there it is, I talked about a minute ago, under the whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones and all of uncleanness. You see, that's this strange woman. She's religion. And religion looks great on the outside. Religion is all white and garnished and beautiful. But on the inside, it's empty. That was the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Boy, I'll tell you, that's a rough thing to say. Jesus, lover of my soul, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Really? Boy, he's putting it to them here. Now, here's the thing you want to see. This is very important. Here he's dealing in his day with two particular religious groups. The first group is the Sadducees. The Sadducees classify themselves as the sons of Zadok. That's Solomon's high priest. They, they, they want to pretend that they go back to him. So they have some kind of, 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 of lineage. The Sadducees in reality was a political religious group. They aligned themselves with the Roman Empire, but yet they were over the religious constituency of much of the nation of Israel. And they did favors for Rome in keeping the Jews under control. Therefore, Rome did favors for them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, The word Pharisee means separated ones. They're the pious ones. They're the ones that that, uh, are very self-righteous in everything that they do. And you find these two groups in religion all the time. All the time. Men who get up and talk about what you ought to be, but they wouldn't walk across the street to give a hot dog to a hungry person like some of you do. Or go out and down there and sweat it out down there folding clothes for the homeless people. They're great at talking about it, but they're not too good at doing it. Now, here's the deal and the reason that he had a problem with these two groups. Neither one of these groups are found in the Old Testament. These are not two biblical groups. God never authorized the Sadducees or the Pharisees. The scribes, yes, and they are screwed up. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they come out of the 606 captivity in that 400 years They developed themselves and took over the religion of the nation of Israel. And now with the first coming of Christ, they're in charge. And they're in charge for one reason. That is, they've established a religious concept that's not in the Bible to withstand Christ when he came to the nation of Israel. That's just like today. Just like Christ had to deal with non-groups that weren't in the Bible that created their own religions. We have to deal with them today. It's just a matter of life. This doesn't mean you get mad. It doesn't mean you get on your hobby horse and I probably preach on it, you know, once every year, two years, whenever it comes up. It's not something you go to seed on, but it's something that you need to understand. <clears throat> now back to Proverbs 5. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> Moving through here. Her end is as bitter as wormwood. <clears throat> now wormwood is a plant. <clears throat> In the classical education world, it's called Artemisithia absinthium. That's the Latin word. It means wormwood. (laughs) I know you're impressed. It's a firm stalk plant with a grayish leaves and small round blossoms, and it's only found in the Middle East. 
It's extremely bitter and it's poisonous. And if you ever want to see the connection to this and the devil and the Antichrist, then put a reference in your Bible in Revelation chapter 8, verse 11. Because there you'll find that there's an angel whose name is Wormwood who comes down during the tribulation period, touches the water, makes the water bitter, and men die. The point is this. The plant looks pretty. The plant looks harmless. The plant looks beautiful when it blossoms. But the bottom line is it will kill you. Just like false religion will look good, it'll look pretty, it'll look great, but at the end, the strange woman will kill you. Now look at the next verse, verse uh, 4, or the end of the verse. It says, sharp two-edged sword. Now a two-edged sword is found in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. <clears throat> and it's likened to the Word of God. It's a sharp two-edged sword. In other words, there's two sides to the Bible. The Bible, you know, when you start talking like this today, people don't get it. But the Bible is not only the greatest book to go to heaven with, it's the greatest book to go to hell with. I mean, it is because uh, you can take it, love it, read it, apply it, do what I'm trying to tell you to do with it, and it'll change your life. But if you also take it and create your own religion, your own world that is without God, that looks good like the whited sepulchers, not a good deal. It's got two sides to it. It'll cut both ways. It'll cut both ways. Now look at verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Proverbs chapter 7 verse 27 says, Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Now look at verse 5 there. It says, take hold on hell. Now this church is, this false religion here, this strange woman, It'll get a hold on you that you can't shake it off. And it'll send you straight to hell. Now, if you've worked with anybody at all, witnessed to anybody at all, you know what I'm talking about. Did you ever try to witness to a Jehovah Witness? Now, Jehovah Witnesses teach that, that they're the only people in the world that's going to heaven. Now, I'm not against Jehovah Witnesses. I, you know, I, I, I've witnessed to them all my life, pray for them. I, 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 but I'm just telling you the bottom line here. If you're not baptized in their church by a Jehovah Witness, there's no other religion. They think that all other religions on this planet, all other churches are going to, going, well, they don't believe in hell, wherever you're going, Topeka, Kansas, or wherever it is, I don't know. They do not accept anything that norm of Christianity teaches. And if you've ever talked to one that's been in it for a long time, you get nowhere with them. You talk about it being a hold on them, you talk about a religion getting a hold on somebody that you can't shake it. You talk about a religious system that gets a, a hold on it. Mormons are the same way. I've talked to them, boy, and started to witness to them and talk to them, and it's almost like when you start to talk about Christ dying on the cross, it's just like their eyes click off and they're in a zombie land and they never hear what you're saying. It gets a hold on you. It gets a hold on you. I, we have a friend that he played volleyball with us, and, and uh, they go to any church. And, and last night I, I tried to I tried to get him to come to church, and he wanted us to come to church. Uh, he's probably one of my best friends on the whole planet, and I love his whole family. And we were sitting down there, and I said, hey, man, I said, you know what I'd like? I'd like for you to come to church. And he said, man, I'd love to come. His wife was all over. She says, oh, yeah, I'd love to come to your church. And he looked at her, you know what he said? He's looking at her and said, you know what? If my mother found out that we went to a Baptist church, I would be disowned. Because she thinks the church that she goes to, that I was raised in, is the only church in the world. And if I went, she found out I went to a Baptist church, another church outside of that, she'd never speak to me again. Now that's a hold on you, man. That's a hold on me. I guarantee you, this guy is no different from me. I love him to death, but he's no different than me. He's no different to you. I never listen to my mother. <laughs> I never listen to my mother. And you haven't either. Look at you. 
It wasn't about his mother. I'm sure his mother said all his growing up, don't do this, don't say that, don't do this, don't do that. I'm sure she did all of those things. It wasn't about his mother. It was about a church that had a hold on him. Boy, I tell you, this woman gets her claws into you. You're, you're hooked. You're hooked. I think there's a practical application in there somewhere. <laughs> it's an incredible concept. I love that guy. I pray for that guy every day. You see, false religions will always instill a non-biblical fear in people. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity, you shouldn't be afraid of some things. I mean, you should. You fear God with a holy reverence. I understand that. But you don't see me getting up here saying, well, if you don't do this, God's going to kill you. If you don't do this, God's going to kill your kids. If you don't do this, God's going to do that. That's not, that's not Christianity. But that's how they hold people. That's how this strange woman gets her claws into people. And they hold them by fear. A controlling fear to manipulate you. I had a, uh, this has been several years ago, that when I was doing my astronomy stuff, uh, a friend of mine who had an astronomy store, and I used to help him out, and we were good friends, and, and uh, people would come in. We met a guy who really wanted to get into astronomy. And, and nice guy. And he lived out by uh, Butler someplace out there, and uh, a lot of Mormons out there, and he was Mormon. And uh, he built an observatory. Really a nice thing, man. And so we went out there a couple of times. Dark skies, very nice. And uh, I was, uh, m- m- my other buddy, Bob, he, he, he doesn't believe in anything. But, uh, but I watched, and it was 30 below gr- to zero. It was freezing. And it was a thing where uh, he, his, his wife kept coming out with cookies, kept coming out with things she baked. She kept coming out with hot coffee. Uh, she kept coming out, coming out, coming out, coming out, coming out, coming out, and with everything. And my other buddy, who don't believe anything, he, he, he said to me, when the guy went in the house, he said, and I probably shouldn't have said this to him because he doesn't distinguish between religion and Christianity. He says, man, he says, he's got some kind of wife. And I said, well, I said, she is a nice lady. But I said, he's a Mormon. And he said, what, what, what's that mean? And I said, I, he, I, you don't know? I said, in the Mormon, when you get down deep inside the Mormon church, the wife only goes to heaven if the husband signs off and says she can. Boy, uh, would you like to have that, guys, for about a week? I see Bob salivating already over here. He's he's heading out to the Mormon church when I'm done here. Can you believe that? She has to obey her husband in everything that he says the way he says it because he holds over her from their religion. That if she doesn't do it and he doesn't give her a stamp of approval, she can't go to heaven. Wow. Now that's a hold on you, man. That's incredible. I mean, it's, and I sit there and I look at that. My heart was breaking because she's a nice gal. And, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is absolutely, it, it made me angry, but I didn't want to say anything because, you know, it's, it, that would have never gotten me anywhere, not that I ever got anywhere with trying to get them the truth, but it was a thing where I came away there thinking to myself, now that's a hold on somebody, that a woman would, would do everything that uh, her husband has to tell her, no matter what it is, because if she doesn't please him, he doesn't shine off that it's okay for her. She can get to heaven that way. That's rough, man. That's tough. That's terrible what that is. I've known people that, that went to particular religions and, and they married outside that religion and that religion excommunicated them. And when they died, you know what? The leader of that religion wouldn't come to bury them, couldn't, couldn't do the service, couldn't do nothing. When they excommunicated them, you're eternally damned. I've known people that, that got divorced and churches threw them under the bus that there was never anything they could ever do for God again and they labeled them and it's, 
it, you talk about controlling people. I mean, I, I, I've had people say, well, you know what? You don't baptize your babies. Your baby's going to die. and spend, If it dies, it's going to be in, in hell for all of eternity. What a way to put fear on people. That's simply not true. People are afraid. And these false religions, this strange woman takes hold on them because they have no discernment. Now, you know the big difference between false church religions and true Bible Christianity? False religion will always tell you what to think. Bible Christianity will always teach you how to think. It won't tell you what to think. It'll show you the principles. My job is not to tell you to do anything. My job is to show you what the Word of God says, and then it's your choice whether you do it or not. I'm your friend whether you do or you don't. A church that teaches that you only get salvation from their church and their church only is, is, is a false religion. I said it earlier, salvation is not based on a church or religion. Salvation is based on your acceptance of Christ deal dying on the cross and your spirit becoming one with his spirit uh, through salvation. After you get saved, then you join a church. But joining a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than running out this afternoon and buying a tuba makes you a musician. But churches are vitally important. After you get saved, this is where you come on a Sunday morning. You get instructions. You get help. If you have issues in life, you get somebody to show you what the Bible says, give you the principles, walk you through it so you don't have to go through it by yourself. But this church, no church can save you. Look at verse 6. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life. Most people don't think about religious things. Did you ever notice that? They don't think about the path of life, what path they're on, till it's too late. But you ought to, we ought to ponder it. You don't get caught up in all the things that you see in religion. You stop and ponder it up against the Bible. I, I think that's good. I'll get calls on the phone all the time from somebody. And a guy called me, oh, I don't know, last year or sometime. And I could tell that he was, he was digging a little bit. You know, he was, he was, he was, I, I, I could just tell by the tone of his voice. He really wasn't interested in our church. He just wanted to tell me what a church really should be. And when they all started, he said, well, he says, I saw your, I got somebody told me about your church and I'm calling, I'm going to come to your church. And he said, but I want to find out some things about your church before I come. Now, honestly, that's the first question mark right there. You want to find out about what a real church is? Go listen to the guy preach. Like, I could tell him anything he wanted to hear. I wouldn't, but I, I, I could. So he says, well, he says, um, he says, what kind of church are you? I said, well, we're a Baptist church. He said, what do you believe? And I said, well, we believe the Bible. And he says, well, he says, uh, uh, can, can, can women wear slacks in your church? No, see, I knew where we were going. And I said, I said, yeah, they certainly can. I said, we don't, we don't look at what a person has on, on the outside. We, we look at what a person wants to do on the inside. He didn't like that answer. See, I knew where this was going. He said, what kind of music you have? And I said, well, we just have, you know, music. I don't know. What do you, uh, we, you know, we, sing, we don't sing She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain, but we sing, you know, songs and we have a good time. He says, you have on church service on Sunday morning? I says, yes. He says, you have on Sunday night? I said, no. He says, you don't have a church service on Sunday night? I said, no. He says, well, why not? I said, well, we feel that we preach the Bible enough in a week and instead of just coming one more night and getting everything, we need to go out. So we go out to the city and we help the homeless people. He didn't like that either. He was done and he said, well, he says, I thank you very much. He says, I may, I, may, I, I may come to your church. And I said, well, I appreciate your calling, but can I ask you a couple questions? I said, you want to know about some questions about our church if you want to come here. I'd like to ask you some to see if we want you to come here. He really didn't like that. Now, I didn't care at this point, but I was a little miffed, so I just kind of stuck him. I said, do you tithe? Now, I don't care if he does or he doesn't. I don't care if you do or don't. But I was, my feathers were up a little bit. And so I thought, you know what? I said, and then I asked him, I said, how many times you read the Bible through? I said, when's the last time you won somebody to Christ? You see, he hung up on me. 
Now, I don't understand it. Why can he ask me questions about what we believe, but I can't ask him questions? Isn't it a two-way street? Why is it you got to ask the questions to see if you want to come here? Let me ask some questions. Maybe I don't want you to come here. Of course, that's not true, but people are weird, man. Thou shouldest ponder the path of life. He was pondering, brother. My greatest example of this, I love this example. My greatest example of this, four or five years ago, around Christmas time, I was watching, uh, uh, there was nothing on TV because all the channels had this great big Christmas thing going on in in Westminster Abbey uh, over in England. And it was the pomp and circumstance unbelievable in the Church of England. And it, they had everybody, they had all of the, the cathedral, they had everybody with candles, they had the singing, they had a choir, everybody had their best robe on, they had this, that, they had a big thing with a cross on them, they had the people going down, throwing stuff in the air. I mean, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a religious experience. And I was captivated. NBC, CBS, ABC, even Fox News. Everybody was talking about this great pageant at Christmas that they have uh, in the Church of England. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, does anybody, is anybody, you know how the Church of England got started? It got started with Henry VIII. And Henry VIII, I am, I am. Henry VIII... (laughs) 1491 to 1547, 1,500 years after Christ died, Henry VIII was married to Catherine of Spain. Now, back then, the countries married their daughters to the kings, kind of like alliances, you know. But Henry had fallen out of love with Catherine, and he met a new chick. Her name was Anne Bolin, and he wanted to marry Anne and dump Kathy. But back then, only the Pope could give a divorce. So he calls up the Pope on the hotline and says, Hey, Pope, um, I, 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 I got to have your help here. I'm married to Catherine of Spain, but I've fallen out of love with her. And man, I've met the sweetest girl you ever met in your life, Anne Bolin. And I want to marry Anne, but I can't do it without you. So I need you to give me a divorce. Well, the Pope said, Henry, I can't do that. That's Philip of Spain's daughter. And Philip of Spain is the king. And him and I got some things going over here, killing all these Albigensians and Huguenots. And and I just can't do that. If I upset Philip of Spain, he's going to get mad at me. And then it's just going to mess my whole plan up. So I'm sorry. I can't give you a divorce. Well, Henry is heartbroken. And he's walking around the castle, moping. Not eaten. A lot like you do when the first time you fell in love. Your mom say, what's the matter? You're not, oh, nothing. <laughs> He's walking around and he, now Thomas Cranner was the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's the highest level uh, at that point uh, in England. And uh, Thomas Cranner sees him moping around and he, he, uh, he, says, uh, he says, your majesty, he says, what's the problem? And he says, well, he says, Tom, he says, I'll tell you. You know, I'm married to Kathy of Spain, and she just don't do it for me anymore. I don't know what to tell you. I, and I met Ann Bowen, boy, and I really like Ann. You seen Ann? I like Ann. You know, and, and, and Ann, but I called the Pope, and I wanted to get rid of Kathy and marry Ann, and Pope wouldn't do anything about it, and he says, my heart's with Ann. And Thomas Craner says, well, Henry, you're the king. Don't you know it's nice to be the king? (laughs) Don't you know you can do anything you want if you're the king? You don't need the pope to tell you who you can marry, who you're not. He says, well, he's the head of the church here in England. And he says, I don't care. You're the king. Start your own church. Henry said, yeah. He got on that phone, called the Vatican, and says, I need to talk to the pope right away. Pope got on the line, and he says, what can I do for you, Henry? And he says, I want you to know. He says, I don't need your decree to get rid of Catherine. I don't need to know what you're going to do. I'm going to go ahead and get my own divorce. And you know what else? I'm starting my own church. I don't need your church anymore. We're going to kick your church out and your religion out, and I'm starting my own church. 
Pope says, what church is that? And he says, uh, hey, Tom, what are we going to call it? <laughs> Thomas says, call it the Church of England. He says, we're going to call it the Church of England. Now, <laughs> that's the true story. I, I, I told that story one time, and some woman came up to me afterwards, stuck her little finger in my face, well, the big finger in my little face, and she says, she says, she says, I never heard that. She says, where do you get that stuff from? I said, ma'am, it's a conspiracy. They hide that stuff in books. That's a true story. And the Church of England then came over in America, and it's the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church over here. But how'd you like to, how'd you like to go through that pomp and circumstance? How'd you like to wake up some morning and find out that the church that you were a member of started 1,500 years after Christ, the religion you started, 1,500 after Christ, and it got started because one man wanted to dump one woman for another woman, couldn't get a degree from the Pope, so he started his own church, and he got the decree, gave himself the divorce, and out of the six women that he had, he murdered two of them. Discretion. Discretion. Ponder the path of thy life when it comes to religion. Our churches are vitally important. Don't you misunderstand me. But I'm telling you, you've got you've to you've ponder what you're getting yourself into. Now look at the last part of verse 6. Her ways are movable, that thou cannot know them. Now, this is the real deal uh, about a true Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church is that it never changes its message. I mean, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews chapter 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. The mark of a false religion will be it continues to change its teaching to keep up with a progressive society. It's just that simple. You know what the real beauty of a Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church is? The real beauty of it is no matter where you go in history, they've always taught the same thing. And as the world changes, as it does, because we've all watched as the world turns, as, as the world changes and becomes more progressive is the big word today, and we all become more social in our mindsets, and we start to get away from the things of the Bible, everything starts to go to pieces. The Bible will always be your anchor. The Bible will always hold to the same truths that Jesus taught. The Bible's not built on religion. The Bible's built on God's truth. It'll be the rock that you can bet your soul on, raise your family, because it never changes. When the winds and the sands of time change and truth begins to fade and nobody believes it anymore, it's like Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. One of my great favorite verses. It says, in that time, sin is now called good and good is now called evil. It says, we put darkness for light and light for darkness. That's what the world has done today. And if you don't have something that stays absolutely true, you're going to get caught up in it. That's the Bible. Changing the message of God to fit a changing society that's already a deepening pit is never a good idea. Get rid of sin and making it the Christian way of life. I'll give you another great example of that. Now, most of you, I was born in 1950, so most of you, you know, you're a lot younger than me. But in 1956, they made the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And uh, Charlton Heston was a Christian, by the way. We'll just forget the fact that he ran around naked in Planet of the Apes, but who wouldn't? But it's a thing where, but <laughs> the Ten Commandments, one of the, and I know it's a movie, okay? I know it's a movie. I know that. I understand. I don't sit down there and get on my knees and pray toward the TV station. I know it's a movie. But I'll tell you what, being a Christian and reading my Bible to see something that, where that voice of God coming out of that burning bush, Man, I'll tell you what, it gives me group. I know God doesn't sound like that. I don't know what he sounded like. <laughs> but just the idea of a man standing there in the voice of God. And then, I mean, the great miracles of the Red Sea being parted. They got that right. It wasn't the sea of reeds where the water was only three inches deep. Yeah. They got the pillar of, they had just about everything right in it. 
That old Chuck Moses down there, you know, he's calling out the Lord God to do this, the Lord God to do that, the Lord God. That was in 1956. Now they come out with Noah. You know, you know Noah? Uh, you know, want to know Noah? Noah. And the big flop is today in 2014, the guy that made it never used the word God one time in it. You know why? Because he didn't want to offend anybody. And as he said, God means so many different things to so many different people. Not to me it doesn't. Amen. See what I'm talking about? Now, next Sunday, we got restart. And the Sunday after that, we're going to go see Noah. We are. We're going to be a... You, and your kids go to school. You go to field trips, don't you? Okay. We're going. Take the kids. It's a, kids can go see it. Sure. And I, I'm not going... I know it's a terrible movie. Amen. <laughs> if Noah built an ark today, you would not be getting on it. I want you to know that. I know it's a stupid movie. I just want, I love things like that because I don't, just my nature. You know, my Pac-Man burned out a while back, so I don't have that. I, I just, I just, I want to see that in the mindset of man who doesn't believe the Bible, I just want to see how much of that underneath the surface, you see that stuff under there. I know it's goofy, but it's, it's interesting. Walking Dead's gone. What else we got to do, man? I mean, come on. But that's my point, you see. Back here, it was God was in everything. Today, oh, we can't use the word God. When you go to Congress and Congress and the Senate, they open up with prayer every session. They always have a pastor come in or somebody to come in and pray. He has to submit his prayer before he can go in and pray, and he cannot use the word Jesus Christ in his prayer. You know why? It offends too many people. Now, I'm glad that in a world that's changing like that, I don't get caught up in that because I got a book that never changes. And I'll stick with it, you see. Verse 7 says, Hear me now, therefore, O you children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Now, doctrinally, that's Israel, told to keep away from the religions of the day. Inspirationally, it's talking to you and me and telling us to stay away from the things. Regard discretion. Uh, or people, you know, you put people away from situations that are going to mess you up. Verse 8 says, Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh to the door of her house. Verse 9 says, let, uh, thy, uh, Lest thou give thine honor unto others, uh, and, let, and let strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labor be in the house uh, of a stranger. You know what that verse is saying? It's saying this. God has some things he wants to give you. God has some things carved out that he wants to put in your life that he wants to give you. But he can't give them to you unless you give yourself to him. So what happens is when he can't give it to you because of you hook up with a strange woman, religion, somebody else gets them. Somebody else gets them. I mean, it's an incredible thing. I mean, I'll tell you something else. It deals with losing all that God has for you. And to me, that's the most terrible part of the ministry. And I love the ministry because I love people. But the thing that is the most downside of the ministry is seeing people who have great potential, great personalities, who have great ability, and yet seem get hooked up with, a, with this woman. And boy, just takes them down the tubes and they lose everything that God had for them. Verse 11 says, And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. And say, how have I hated instructions and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. Now, brother, I've seen that many over the years. Believe me. I've seen people come to the end of their life where the life was busted, it was broken, it was ruined. The world stepped all over them and the, and the, and the, and the evil man and the strange woman just beat them senseless and they're left busted at the end of their life. And they look back and they remember back when they had a chance or when God was fresh in their heart, when they had an opportunity, maybe like today, to hear and change their life. But they stayed on and they kept on going uh, the old way. And now here they are and they're all messed up. They're all beat up. They're all the, the emptiness of life uh, that, that you've given to religion or the world instead of a spiritual relationship with Christ. The hollow shell of a man or a woman after 40 plus years of living a life well, any regard for God. I've seen them. I've talked with them. 
I've heard them say, oh, Bob, pray and help me. I've heard them say, I have some real issues, Bob, and I need you to pray for me. I had them say, Bob, I'm a mess. I've got some things I really, uh, but after 30 or 40 years, it's got such a hold on you. That religion, that woman, that evil man that you loved and gave all yourself to and had all your life to will in the end betray you and in the end it'll send you straight to hell because she's a harlot. Her business is taking advantage of innocent young men and young ladies for a profit under herself and then dumping them for somebody else. She'll take all that you have and leave you at the end of your life empty, broken, busted, and all of, it, all of it comes down to an empty, endless life. Now, let me tell you something. You can, have, you can have everything that God wants for you. You can have, break that stronghold. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, for the, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But it starts with salvation. It starts with you getting the things in your life that you need to get, and then let God help you. Let this church help you. Let us help you. That's how it works. Well, we'll hold up there, and we'll pick it up next week. and we'll get on down through the chapter. Thank you for being here. Let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget, if you've got kids going to be part of this tonight, uh, you've got to have them here at 4 o'clock. Everybody else will see you at 5. You can still get tickets this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed.